there's, you know, definitely stuff that we took from ourselves in high school. Like I was definitely the girl in English class who complained about what books we had to read. Yeah, Karen was telling me about her diary in high school or a list, a list that she found, 10 things I hate about Anthony was this boyfriend of hers. And, and I wrote down on a piece of paper, 10 things I hate about you. And then parenthetical movie title. And I think that might have been even before we cracked the script or which movie it would go along with. And we kind of found that note and then that just became the perfect fit. Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week, we're joined by the awesome Kirsten Kiwi-Smith and Karen McCullough, writers of the high school comedy classic, 10 Things I Hate About You. Released in 1999, this teenage reworking of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew had it all. Big laughs, blossoming romance, coming-of-age emotion, and a ridiculously fun soundtrack. The film told the tale of two sisters, a smart but abrasive outcast called Kat, and her younger sibling Bianca, who's banned from dating until her sister does. When a new kid at school called Cam falls for Bianca, a plan is hatched to set Kat up with a mysterious bad boy named Patrick played by the late, great Heath Ledger. I caught up with Karen and Kiwi to hear about the rebellious fun of turning a classic literary tale into a high school romp, the ahead-of-its-time feminist message they wanted the film to have, and the erotic fiction-loving character that they cut out of the film to cast the story in a whole new light. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Karen, Kiwi, such a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you both today? We're wonderful. Thank you so much for having us. Glad to hear it. So guys, 10 Things I Hate About You is one of the definitive high school movies and one of the definitive rom-coms. And you've now had 21 years, I believe it is, of people celebrating the movie and sharing with you guys the ways it's impacted their lives. Across that time, how close have you gotten to working out what it was about this film that connected with people? How do you describe the lightning in a bottle that you captured with this movie? I think it's the cast, because the cast is just so awesome. And they're just so funny and perfect for their roles. And I think just, you know, being in love in high school is something that's always going to keep happening, no matter, you know, what generation we're in. Yeah, and I think Yeah, I think there's also there it was it was like had its roots in of feminism before that became a buzzword. So I feel like mm. a lot of the younger female generation really now connects with that. Um it had it had edge to it, you know. Um that's uh, those were comments that people have said to us. They the 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 tone the edgy tone of the writing I think connected with people and and yeah, really like Karen said that the incredible group of actors that 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 came together. Um, the chemistry between them all was in, epic. So people pick up on that and just had a bouncy tone. And um, you know, it comes stolen from one of the greatest storytellers ever, Shakespeare. So <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I guess about credit. your contribution. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's um. Well, we'll talk about Shakespeare. But let's go back to the beginning before we do. So the story that I've heard about how your creative partnership came to be is that, Karen, you were out in Denver and Kiwi, you were in LA. You met for a drink when Karen was in town and um, you immediately hit it off so much that you actually began writing an action movie 
together right there and then on the back of a cocktail napkin. Is that right? <laughs> This yes. is true. That is That's correct. True. <laughs> yes. I, I still have we, the napkins, actually. They're somewhere in my scrapbook. We like to say that we got pregnant on our first date. <laughs> <laughs> Kirsten likes to say that. I never like you know, to say that. Oh, really? I, don't I like think the, it's so cute. I don't like the word pregnant <laughs> in any relation to my body. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was really instant, though. We just... Um, fueled by margaritas, you know, inspired. We, we, we started by talking about like, uh, Karen had an idea and we just started populating it with, Ooh, it would be so great if Feruza Balk was in it and Taya Leone. And we had a whole, and Lily Taylor, we just started like getting really inspired by the cast and then kind of breaking, uh, describing their characters. We went to many, many locations and, and just, (laughs) Kirsten tried to steal an ottoman at the last location. I remember that. <laughs> she was like, do you think I could get this in my car? And I was like, no, I, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Can you remember what the action film was about? What the premise was? Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's so silly. We can't even talk about it. We can't. Oh, come on. It's so, no, it's, it's very silly. <laughs> it was based on something real, actually weird. A Navy SEAL was trying to pick up my sister in a bar when we were all having a beach weekend and he ended up back in our room, passed out on the bed. And I was just like, this is a Navy SEAL. This is like a person who's like trained to kill. And he just walked into a room filled with women who could totally take him out. Like he doesn't know we're not ninjas. Like I was just like very <laughs> intrigued by the fact that he was like this person who was like, you know, so lethal. But at that moment we could have just completely killed him. I thought that was an intriguing premise and that's kind of what the movie was about. What if a group of women all who had various different backstories were sort of part of a larger operation um, to bring down these guys? Um, they were bad. Yeah. Like bad, like domestic terrorists that they were bringing down. It was very silly. We were we super inspired by <laughs> Long Kiss Goodnight, um, which yes. was a yeah. movie that I think had it, had it been, made or just the script had sold i can't remember but um sold for like four million dollars and we were like we need to write an action movie (laughs) (laughs) needless to say no one cared um but (laughs) it did it did launch a collaboration between us that then just uh, began spanning for until now and we wrote we wrote that script long distance and then we wrote um we decided we wanted to do a teen comedy which maybe was um more more in our innate wheelhouse and so we we decided to adapt a a classic play we i'll let you get to it but we ended up yeah we ended up writing uh, quite a few i think three scripts total long distance in the early days this was the third i think yeah yeah but yeah, you mentioned that you uh, you started to turn your attention to a high school set film. High school is such a like cross section of society, and it's all these people at this kind of transformative moment in their lives, full of optimism but full of awkwardness as well. Was that kind of what was drawing you towards making a high school movie, or, or what were some of the reasons pulling you in that direction? I think my so called life was on the air at the time, and I became kind of obsessed with just high school drama. I guess. Yeah, so yes. we were definitely like deep into like teen drama, teen comedy, and we were and like, "This is what we need to do." 
Karen's favorite movie at that time was Grease. And my favorite movie was, I mean, I loved all the John Hughes movies, 16 Candles and Breakfast Club. And so those were like really, you know, still they were like the core nostalgia favorite movies for us that um so it just it just felt right that we would we would do a high school comedy because that's kind of where our heart was and in terms of like borrowing a classic literary tale to tell in a contemporary setting there's a bit of rebellion and naughtiness in the way that the film takes this quote-unquote highbrow source material shakespeare and parachutes it into a genre of cinema that at the time was kind of or critics were pretty dismissive of and saw as lowbrow was that kind of part of the attraction and part of the fun of doing a project like this? Um, yeah, I mean, there, Clueless was based on Emma, so yeah. that kind of started the trend. So, but yeah, I, I mean, it was definitely fun to like sift through Shakespeare. I have, I still have my big book of Shakespearean sonnets where I went through with the highlighter and tried to pull out words that I liked that I could, you know, throw into teen dialogue or just. It was a lot of fun to do that because it was. It really, I guess, hadn't been done at that point. So we felt like we were forging new ground. That makes sense. And well, not to take things on too personal a tangent, but my mum and dad were both secondary school English teachers. And they actually like lit up when I told them that you were going to be coming on the show because for them, this film was such an amazing tool in creating an inroad to Shakespeare for a lot of students. Was that something kind of you were conscious of wanting to achieve, creating like a certain accessibility for young audiences to Shakespeare? No, but I like that that was a byproduct of it. Yeah, so do I. I mean, I I was an English major and I mean, that's, it's, it's pretty cool. And uh, that's so lovely that your parents were, that the movie means something to them as well. Yeah. If you're ever in Norfolk and uh, want a drink or a cup of tea, they, they owe you one. So <laughs> yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, but I don't think we were like um, necessarily thinking of ourselves as, as future, you know, educators or <laughs> I think we were just sort of, we were just sort of like blindly following like, okay, we love teen movies and this adapt a classic approach is, is something that's, that's working. And um, so it was pretty, it was pretty innocent. We weren't too calculated about it. Yeah. Cause I suppose as well as clueless, this would have been, I'm trying to work out the timeline, but Baz Luhrmann had that Romeo and Juliet around the same exactly. time. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was, it was definitely, it was a trend that we, we saw was moving upward. Um, and particularly, you know, it's valuable. I think when you're starting out, it's not like you want to write, you, you want to write things that don't, that don't sell or don't make a splash. And we, we certainly had our actions script where we were, we thought we were following a very hot trend that didn't work, but, but in this case, um, it, it seemed like a better fit and yeah, you want to, you want to, you know, create something that definitely gets you in the door that, that, um, starts your career. I mean, we, I don't think we had any idea that we would get lucky enough to have it be made, you know, as our, as our first thing. We're balancing like Karen's blind optimism with my very uh, neurotic skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good yin and yang. What were some of the conversations you guys were having early on that informed your first draft? I mean, there's just so much that's relatable to anyone's experience of high school. I guess you must have had sort of lots of late night sessions kind of trading your own experiences of high school. Well, there was oh so gosh, much story yeah. in the play that <laughs> like at first we were just kind of, I think our first draft was like 200 pages and then we had to whittle it down to like the parts of the story that were the most important and cutting different subplots and stuff. But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, definitely 
stuff that we took from ourselves in high school. Like I was definitely the girl in English class who complained about what books we had to read. Like that was definitely <laughs> part of my my daily battle with Mrs. Besaw. Always things like <laughs> Moby Dick and Huck Finn, which I maintain as the Hardy Boys with racism. But um, <laughs> I just, you know, I wanted to read more interesting things. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was really into indie rock, you know, I was from, I'm from Seattle. So that whole thing was blossoming at that time. And, and so that was a really big part of it for me. And um, I mean, when we were talking, yeah, I remember one of our early drives too, Karen was like, when you had that, um, you were driving and I was sitting in the passenger seat. We were, I'd flown to Denver to, to um, go on a work session. I think we were going to Aspen for our work session. Oh yeah. We right. Yeah. And, and Karen As was one going, does, just right? seven hours. <laughs> we just, right. So we wanted to have always these destination um, meetups, but uh, yeah, Karen was telling me about uh, her diary in high school or a list, a list that she found 10 things I hate about Anthony was this, a boyfriend of hers and and I wrote down on a piece of paper 10 things I hate about you and then parenthetical movie title and I think that might have been even before we uh, cracked the script or which movie it would go along with um, but then that then we kind of found that note and then that just became the perfect fit once we started breaking the story but we didn't start out writing it with the title in mind but I think it was like midway through the writing process at our the outlining process it hit us that, that yeah, so I went back perfect. I went back and read my diaries from high school to get in that mindset mm-hmm. and that's when I found the list but it was much longer than 10 things <laughs> very, <laughs> very long <laughs> but yeah and when we outlined the script we outlined it we went to Mexico <laughs> another destination <laughs> and we were like Florida, that, Asia. <laughs> yes and we sat on the beach and we had beer and we just yeah it was really it was really fun and i think that kind of carries with us to this day our process we try to i mean we haven't really gotten to work together in person since the pandemic but but always we like to be outside we like to have drinks um you know we just try to make it as as festive as as possible but yes we, we wrote 10 things on the beach. well we outlined 10 things on yes. the beach with a bucket of corona and a notebook that was our that was our workspace <laughs> yeah that sounds a little bit better than a dingy office um, <laughs> yeah. but can you tell me when you talk about some of those subplots that you um whittled down and sort of had to take away from this 200 page monster of a script what were some of those subplots what were the hard things to cut and the things that you just had to trim I think it had something to do. It was with the boys. There yeah. was like a lot, a whole like masquerade type of subplot that involved uh, the characters that Joseph Gordon-Levitt and David Krumholtz played, I think. So we realized we didn't have much for, enough room for. I think they had like, uh, there was like some other love interest or something in there. But, and I think we actually took, removed one character in total. Yeah. I do remember that in one of the early drafts, the song that he sang was, I think I love you. Yeah, that's correct. Then that was used in Scream. So we had to change that. And then Kirsten and I changed it to the Divinal song, Touch Myself. When I think about you, I touch myself. (laughs) We thought that was really funny. And then Keith, (laughs) Keith changed it to the song that's in the movie now because he's like, no, it shouldn't be funny. It should be romantic. And uh, he was completely correct. So I'm glad he changed it. That's so funny because in the script here, 
it's I think I love you, but I, I just assumed it was a rights issue as these things often are. Oh uh, no. God, so you have an early draft. So that I think is the draft that we sold. And then we did another rewrite um, for touchstone where we had to add the, the, you know, the missing mother. Disney yeah, is very parents, fond of missing mothers. Were the parents still married? Kat and Bianca's parents still married in the draft you have? In the draft I have, Bianca and Kat's mum is, she's, she's in the script and, and it's her in this version who writes the erotic fiction yeah. instead, of, instead of the um, Perkins. When they made us get rid of the mom, I was like, but we can't get rid of the romance stuff. That's funny. So we, then we like, the guidance counselor is now a romance writer. <laughs> <laughs> but that's quite interesting because it's such a small change, but it makes the film tick in a different way. Because I was trying to imagine what it would have been like you know, on screen if uh, the mother was there. And kind of, I guess, like my interpretation over the years was always that the dad is so protective of his daughters because it goes unsaid in the film, but like he's lost his wife at some point and that's part of his motive. Was that kind of what, what led to the character being taken out or what was the reason why there was a mum on the scene, but yeah, you ended up cutting her out of the film? Well, we were told to, but um, yes. they, the reason was... <laughs> why did they tell you to do that? They thought it would explain why Kat was so cranky if the mom had left. Right, okay. Didn't understand that like teenage girls are just inherently cranky because (laughs) they have to deal with teenage boys. We thought that was very clear. But uh, they were like, hey, if her mom's gone, then she's going to have more of a reason to be mad at stuff. And we're like, all right. Yeah, it was one of of the first of many, you know, many conversations over the years that we've had about making the female characters like more likable or more understandable. I, I think those conversations are happening less now um but but certainly then it was although i think you know it 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 was ultimately a good note that serves the story well no yeah it worked out i'm not i'm not mad that we had to take it out but uh that is how it came about so i want to dive a little bit into the draft that i have which is there's a different opening scene we open on padua high school in the daytime your typical urban suburban high school in portland oregon Smarties, skids, preppies, granolas, loners, lovers, the in and out crowd, rub sleep out of their eyes and head for the main building. Cat Stratford, 18, pretty, but trying hard not to be, in a baggy granny dress and glasses, balances a cup of coffee and a backpack as she climbs out of her battered baby blue 1975 Dodge Dart. A stray skateboard clips her, causing her to stumble and spill her coffee. The skateboarder responsible comes over to apologize and Kat ends up grabbing the skateboard, using it to shove him against a car, tip of the skateboard at his throat. Um, can you tell me about Kat and how you saw that character? It's such a fun, very well, aggressive. They made, us, they made us change that because they were like, she's too scary on page one. Boys won't like her. And we were like, no, that's kind of the point. Like, what? Yeah, we loved that scene. I was bummed that they changed it. Yeah. In the actual film, of course, you come up with like a quicker way to convey who Kat is. So a camera pans down on Seattle, where you ended up locating the movie instead of Portland. We meet a car full of preppy girls kind of bopping to bare naked ladies at a stop sign. And then Kat pulls up next to them in her beat up car, punk music blaring from the stereo. And the first sort of line of music we hear is that lyric, I don't give a damn about my reputation, which is so fitting. And uh, yeah, these two contrasting images of teen girlhood and the way that the preppy girls roll their eyes at Kat tell you so much. 
And it's, it's actually just one example of like the role that music would go on to play in 10 things. So can you tell yeah, me about at what point it, great. it's so good, right? Can you tell me a little bit about like uh, at what point it was that music started to take on a pronounced role in the movie? Yeah, as you say, that soundtrack is just insanely fun. And such a part of the fabric. One of the, there, one of the guys in Bare Naked Ladies used to play in this like frisbee football league in my neighborhood. And I was yeah. like, hey, one of your songs is in one of my movies. And he's like, I don't know what songs were. I just cash the checks. Like, you didn't even ask me. What <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, that must be nice. Okay. <laughs> That's the most amazingly LA sentence I've ever heard. A member of the Bare Naked Ladies is in what? My friends. Frisbee? Okay. Frisbee football <laughs> in the dog park under the Hollywood sign. It was a quintessential LA moment. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think music was just always, it was really embedded into the, the fabric of who the characters were because, um, you know, that, that nineties indie rock ethos that was going on in, in the Pacific Northwest at that time. And, it just, it had so much rebellion to it. I mean, the granny dresses and the Courtney love and all that sort of like grunge vibes and indie, yeah. you know, riot girl vibes. That was really inspiring. Um, and very much always a part of, of her world and, and a part of the, a part of the script from the start. That was something that we always talked about. And we were really pleased too, that the Pacific Northwest aspect still was retained because, um, there, when we were making them, when it was greenlit, there was talk of maybe relocating it to LA just for budget yeah, purposes. Remember and they wanted to shoot it in New York at first and, and change the, Oh, right. And there was kind school. of, right. We were cruel intentions was, was like, Oh, you can't do that. It's too cruel intentions. Um, I think there was a little talk of LA somewhere as well, but then the director found, um, this high school up in Seattle, which then became, you know, as you know, a whole character unto itself. And, <laughs> and so it was, but it was great to be able to carry that Pacific Northwest feeling throughout. And oh, to great effect, you know, that now, house that, that's their house yeah. was for sale last year, I think for like 2 million or something. Cause uh, <laughs> my, my friend's mom is a real estate agent up there and she sent the listing and it was like the 10 things house. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although I suppose if you buy it, you're going to have people outside. It's like someone bought the house from the Goonies, I think, but then they really regretted it because they had people outside right. just tourists <laughs> all day, every day. Yeah. Anyways, the next scene in this draft contrasts the spiky skateboarder assaulting cat with her sister who's in the girl's bathroom. So Bianca Stratford is a beautiful sophomore standing facing the mirror, applying lipstick. Her less extraordinary but still cute friend Chastity stands next to her. Bianca asks, did you change your hair? Chastity replies, no. Bianca says, you might want to think about it. So can you tell me about Bianca? Was she, was she a tricky character to write at all? <laughs> it, she was a lot of fun to write. It's yeah. always fun to write the villain. I mean, she was kind of the villain a little bit. Um, but in terms of the girls, I guess. But uh, it's funny that Chastity is described as less extraordinary and they cast like the most beautiful girl in the world, Gabrielle Union. <laughs> That's interesting to hear you describe her as a villain in a way because she ticks a certain box but she also never falls into pantomime she's popular and materialist but she's also like quietly smart and she's not the mean girl that she might have been written as 
So how did you arrive at that balance? What were some of the conversations about who Bianca would be? She was a little mean to her sister. She was mean to Kat, I think. Mm. But uh, we didn't really see her being mean to other people. That's true. Yeah, I think Larissa Olenek brought so much humanity and intelligence to to the role. Um, I mean, fun side fact, Larissa really wanted to play the role of Kat. And... um, ended up playing Bianca perfectly. And then she, Larissa, the actress ended up going to Sarah Lawrence um, for college after, I think kind of, she was like going to live the cat role, even if she didn't play her in this movie, (laughs) which I always thought was really sweet. And we then meet Cameron. He's in the uh, school guidance counselor's office. It's his first day. You describe him as being clean cut, easygoing senior with an open farm boy face who sits facing Miss Perky, an impossibly cheery guidance counsellor. <laughs> Miss Perky says, I'm sure you won't find Padua any different than your old school. Same little ass wipe motherfuckers everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so that scene was shot in the movie, but then because yeah. you get one fuck and it has to be non a non-sexual fuck in a <laughs> PG-13 movie. So we thought, great we can say motherfuckers but apparently there's a motherfucker rule so they had to change motherfucker to shit for brains and like cgi her mouth but that was before cgi was really good so if you watch that scene again the her lips and the sound don't match oh, i'm gonna look out for that next time because she had to re-record shit for brains instead of motherfuckers but we were like what has the same number of syllables that's a funny cuss word we're like motherfucker shit or like it was very studious work that day that we had to figure that out and how did you approach cameron who was that character just like the quintessential nice guy Mm -hmm. pretty much um, like a farm boy face is a really funny thing. I don't oh, yeah. that. Yeah, we like really described our characters more back then. Right. Now we're just like Cameron, eighteen, like, <laughs> like <that> right, <laughs> friendly. Um, yeah. <laughs> we should really go back and learn from these drafts. Thank you. I know. I'm going to read it over again. <laughs> We're gonna um, get that skateboard scene in a future movie somewhere. Someone's gonna. But now I know. Now I know why Joe Gordon Levitt. We he wanted to meet with us before signing on to the movie and talk about the character in more detail, so he could get a handle on who he was before he committed. He was the first actor to join the cast, and and yeah, now I know because he's like, "Am I a farm boy?" I mean, this is how I see myself. <laughs> But yeah, we had a we had a dinner with him and the producers, and I think I said something like, "You're like the Luke Skywalker of the movie." Yeah, and I was just like, "No, that's not a thing. That's not." No. <laughs> he did it, Karen. It worked. He did it. I mean, you told him that. But it was not true, right? But I guess Luke Skywalker was a farm boy, right? Didn't this? Right? He was. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen Star Wars. So as Cameron's coming out of the guidance counselor's office, he runs into Patrick Verona, a sullen looking badass senior who waits outside. He obviously is going to be another of the key characters in the movie. And of course, the character was made iconic by the late great Heath Ledger. Can you tell me about writing this character and uh, yeah, the way that Heath brought Patrick to life so brilliantly? Well, when he was cast, we changed the character to someone who's grown up in Australia because he didn't, wasn't doing an American accent at that point. Yeah. And, uh, 
it kind of, you know, as Kirsten said, my favorite movie is Grace. So all of a sudden he became like the Sandy from Grace. It's very exciting. Um, but uh, at first, I think, didn't he, Kirsten, didn't he audition to play Joey Daughter first, the model? And then they were like, hey, maybe we should be Patrick. He, I actually knew him he, before he was cast. And I, he, had, he came to L.A. off of an, a TV show, moved in with a friend of mine, and um, he had blonde hair. So I think I was seeing him like Cameron because he was like the new guy with blonde hair. He had that more of that farm boy look, I guess. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, I was like, will you he'd gotten the script from his agents. And I was like, what do you think? Um for Cameron, he's like, no, I am Petruchio. <laughs> but said in a really like, you know, badass, charming way. And I was like, okay, yes, sir. Um, he was really already just super confident and knew exactly who he who who he was and what he wanted to do creatively. And um, and I when he auditioned, Karen, remember we saw the tape and he he showed up at the audition wearing like a white white suit, yeah, with like a black button up underneath and button up shirt. And I mean, no, none of the other guys auditioning were anywhere close to that. It just was such a such a radical, cool move, you know, showing up wearing <laughs> that suit. And he always, um, always seems like way older than his ears to me. I remember. Yeah worrying that he was going to look so much older than the other kids, even though he was younger because he had such like a manly adult presence about him. Mm -hmm. Like when we hung yeah. out with him, it didn't feel like we were hanging out with a teenage kid, but like we were hanging out with a peer mm -hmm. and we were like, you know what? Late twenties. I was, I think I was like 30 yeah. at the time. 31. So it just felt like we were hanging out with a contemporary, not like a kid. And he just was an old soul that way. So I think yeah. he brought a lot of that presence to the character um, you know, making him more soulful and not just a badass. And it was also cool because we, you know, we got to have um, conversations with him probably that about, about the script that were sort of um, as, as friends. Cause you know, they were the part of the process sometimes is like they, they usually keep the writers away from the actors until a certain point in the process. But we got to talk to him about, um, what he was thinking as we were doing our own polish for the studio. So that was really, and his ideas were great. And, and that was really fun to be able to like develop it a little bit with him. And you mentioned there that uh, Cameron is of course, like the new kid at school. It's like a cool expositional tool, I guess, because him being new allows Michael, who you describe as a lanky brainy senior who will either end up a politician or a game show host. Um, <laughs> Um, God damn, we were good at this. We know. <laughs> Michael takes them on like a uh, sort of tour of the school and its different like cliques. So we meet the basic beautiful people, the cowboys, who Michael says jack off to Clint Eastwood. We meet the coffee. <laughs> we meet the coffee kids, very edgy. Don't make any sudden movements around them. And uh, finally, of course, the white rasters, who I love. And uh, yeah, it's at this point that Cameron stops listening as Bianca walks by, and we go into slow motion, pure and perfect. She passes Cameron and Michael without a look. Cameron is smitten. Bianca Stratford, sophomore. Don't even think about it. Warns Michael. Why not? Asks Cameron. I can start with your haircut, but it doesn't matter, replies Michael. She's not allowed to date until her older sister does, and that's an impossibility. So that's something different in this draft as well, because I think by the shooting draft, you decided that we need to see the girl's father establish that rule rather than introduce it right away. 
can you remember the decision making process behind that? I don't remember it, but it was a good one because it's better to, for it to yeah. come from the dam. I guess it's well. We, we definitely changed him into um, an obstetrician to make him more against the girls dating because he was, you know, delivering babies to teen girls all day. <laughs> yeah. and so he didn't want that to be his daughter's fate. So that was an ad to make that role seem more organic. But yeah, that's funny. I didn't remember that we had Michael stating it right up front. Yeah, I didn't either. I do remember, though, that the cowboys, people were just like, what school has cowboys? But I was living in Denver <laughs> at the time. And I would, when we were writing this, I would park outside of the local high school in Littleton, Colorado, <laughs> and watch the kids just to see what clicks there were. So that's where the cowboys and the white rosters came from. Uh, there's a lot of white rosters living in Telluride, Colorado, the <laughs> Trustafarians. <laughs> And then he was taken to jail. There was what? I said, and then you were taken to jail for lurking yeah, outside for, of ice. For, yeah, I was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very lucky that I never got asked any questions. Hi, just writing a movie. It's fine. <laughs> Let's talk Joey, who is frighteningly recognizable as a character. I think everyone went to school with a Joey. We get a glimpse of him here showing off to his friends like schmoozing girls with, uh, I think, what Cameron describes as a shit-eating grin. Um, <laughs> yeah, How did you kind of go about constructing that character and making him the antagonist, if you like? We just thought he was funny, I think. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the modeling thing just seemed like a perfect narcissistic yeah. touch. And the actor who plays that role is literally the nicest, sweetest guy <laughs> in the world. So he's like... It's just so fun to watch him play this villain because he is like the polar opposite of that. There's another sort of change in this draft here where as a plan is hatched to get uh, Cameron closer to Bianca, Cameron in this version already knows French. His mum's Canadian. But in the final movie, he's like, well, I, I don't know French, but, you know, sort of blag it basically. Was that just kind of a decision to kind of ramp up the romance? And I guess because it's funnier as well. Yeah. That was probably either Joe or the director made that change, I would imagine. Probably Joe, just because it makes him, you know, more eager to be with her if he's having to learn a whole language to pretend to be her tutor. We then have a scene kind of glimpsing into Cat and Bianca's home life. Making the father Walter, as we mentioned, a doctor delivering babies is the perfect explanation for his very guarded approach to his two daughters. Walter's also an absolute riot. He gets so many great lines. But yeah, you start to sort of assemble the plot and kind of get all the pieces um, yeah, in front of you here. Bianca has her French lesson with Cameron and Cameron asks Bianca out, but Bianca, you get the impression, kind of senses an opportunity. I'm at the mercy of a particularly hideous breed of loser, my sister. I can't date until she does. The problem is she's completely antisocial. She used to be really popular when she started high school. Then it was like she just got sick of it or something. And here's where all the cogs start to turn in terms of a plot. So Bianca is going to get Cameron to find Kat a boyfriend. Cameron's going to use Joey to fund the operation. Joey's going to pay Patrick to date Kat and so on and so forth. Was assembling all that really fun or was it quite tricky? Because you've got quite a lot of moving pieces there. It was fun. It's yeah, always it nice really to have fun. <laughs> the more moving pieces, the better. Yeah. Well, really, we, he, he gifted us with a lot of great, a lot of great machinations, as you say. Yes. And how much of this for people who aren't, uh, who maybe weren't paying attention in in, in uh, secondary school as much as they should have been? Um, how much of this of that bulk of the uh, the sort of plot was taken directly from Taming the Shrew, and how much were you sort of playing around fast and loose with? That's a hard like, question. I know, <laughs> like, like oh, 
Maybe I mean, like, I think- I, most, most like 80% in yeah. terms of all those, all those setups for sure of everyone yeah. having their own agenda and all the wagers and the, and the trickery started. I felt, I felt like that was a, what I mean, that's definitely like a, a hallmark of Shakespeare to have all yeah. people. Mm. Duplicity. And we soon get to Cat and Patrick meeting. You've been dropping all in all these rumors that Patrick killed a guy in Alcatraz and things like that and was out of school last year making pornos. You then have this great uh, first interaction. Patrick approaches Cat on the athletics field. Hey, girly. Cat stops and turns slowly to look at him. Patrick continues. I mean, woman, how are you doing? Cat smiles brightly, sweating like a pig, actually. And yourself? Patrick replies, there's a way to get a guy's attention. He then tries to seduce her, offering to pick her up on Friday night and take you to places you've never been before and back. Cat replies, <laughs> like where? The 7-Eleven on Burnside? <laughs> so um, what did you need to set up with these characters in terms of how their relationship would uh, unfold and how, you know, they're, they're both such icy personalities to begin with, but you needed to get them to a place where, you know, they, they warm up and some of that iciness thaws a little bit. I mean, it was mostly, you know, setting up that she wasn't going to fall for all of his normal tricks that he might use on other girls. Like she wasn't having it. So it was, it was fun to play that repulsion for a while. And then when they both decide to get real with each other, then that's when the attraction grows. I mean, he had, he had no real idea about who she was or what, what, what she was going to respond to. So he's sort of throwing out some, some things that, you know, maybe his usual tricks, but might also just be things he's like, I'll try this, you know, why not? And were there any other kind of uh, like movie inspirations or rom-com inspirations that you were looking to as you wrote that romance? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, right. I think we talked a lot of Jordan Catalano. Uh, yeah, definitely. And we, and I mean, I think for me, it was a little bit of, I loved the, I love breakfast club John Hughes's movie and that that kind of felt like he did really fun things with a Judd Nelson and Molly Ringwald character and and yeah I mean Sixteen Candles is a classic and some kind of wonderful and I just gobbled all those movies up so he always managed to get that really great um, teen authenticity with you know real kind of attitude from his character so that was inspiring. And as we touched on a little bit earlier, the thing that kind of really finally wins Kat over is that moment where Patrick sings to win her back, performing on the bleachers. I mean, that scene has become so iconic and it's probably like the best known out of the entire film. Can you remember what it was like when you saw the film for the first time and it got to that scene? It's still, I mean, even for me, it's just like so fun and so, uh, yeah, kind of spine tingling to watch. What was it like for you guys when you first saw the film and saw that scene? Where were we, Karen? I think probably, was it at that test screening in the... We were on my couch, I think. I think we watched it on dailies and on video they sent us. I mean, his moves were so great. And I mean, it's just, it was just a knockout moment. I mean, we we knew he was going to deliver it incredibly, but like, yeah, seeing it all together, it was... I think we were shocked that he could sing so well. Yeah. Like we we had no idea he could sing. We're like, whoa, okay. And that he built in all those little like dance flourishes and and then and then embedded with this physical comedy was yeah. Chasing the cops around and spanking them on the butt. Right. (laughs) 
Yeah, he definitely ad-libbed all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think in the script, we were just like, Patrick sings, like, yes. all the rest of the town. Well, you probably know, what does the script say? Yeah, what does it say? <laughs> <laughs> like getting a, a test on our own thing that we wrote 20 years ago. I hope we're passing. Jeez. <laughs> 23 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Good grades so far. Don't worry. Okay. Um, so yeah, what does it say in the script for that description? Well, you know, actually, uh, this whole section you didn't write as being on the bleachers. Mm. Oh, I think it was in the cafeteria was, or something. Oh, right? yeah. Actually, he's outside Cat's English class. Oh, that's right. That's right. right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I can understand why he switched it to the bleachers. I guess cinematically, even. Yeah, that location had that. Um, just that magical stadium. It's called Stadium High School, so it was made great use of it. Well, adding the marching band in was like mm-hmm. a fun addition. And then from there, their relationship really blossoms and they share that kiss after that paintball game. Patrick has fallen for Kat and then it all goes horribly wrong at the dance. Kat finds out that Joey had initially paid him to take her out. You were paid to take me out by the one person I truly hate. I knew it was a setup. Patrick insists it wasn't like that. Kat says, really? What was it like? A down payment now, then a bonus for sleeping with me? And that line, you're so not who I thought you were, something about Julia's performance there just crushes me every time. All this leads to that pivotal moment of the film that we kind of touched on earlier, the titular moment of the movie, Kat's poem. And uh, Karen, did you say this was there was a real life version of that poem? You had written this poem, but maybe you hadn't read it out in class or, or had you? Kirsten wrote it for the movie. Yeah, it wasn't in existence. Yeah, I was a, I was a poet in... Uh, uh, during college and and so on and so forth. But yeah, it was kind of the perfect combination of Karen's title and this poem coming together and Julia's performance, which really surprised us. I I don't think we, either of us imagined that she was going to cry. And uh, and when she she did, it was like, oh, this is so good. (laughs) And that was, I think, take one. Yeah, wow. there's that beautiful reaction shot of Heath watching oh, her read yes. the poem. That's my favorite shot of him in the whole movie. So good. Mm. And then, of course, uh, Patrick buys her a Fender Strat to help her start her band and leaves it on the front seat of her car. And it kind of melts her heart. They kiss. And, and the film ends in this draft with all the characters at a barbecue looking at their yearbook. yeah yeah i promise (laughs) but of course in the actual film there's this amazing ending where the camera kind of pulls out on the characters and letters for cleo are performing on the top of the school which is cool yeah Yeah. Yeah. can you you remember much about that barbecue ending no (laughs) (laughs) wait we read it to us (laughs) uh do i have it in front of me oh i can it's okay (laughs) maybe it wasn't it, it might not be that good maybe not yeah, um, <laughs> um, Karen and I always have a funny issue with our endings. I mean, I think all writers struggle. Part of it is because you focus so much energy on the first, you know, a hundred pages. I think you get a little worn out when you get to the end and everything else is much more carefully honed. You know, you've read it hundreds of times so at the end, you're kind of looking at maybe like a third draft or something like that, as opposed to a hundredth draft. But also we, we, we want to bring, we always have this habit of like creating a kind of a parade where, you know, a people like a group setting where everyone's together and it's all going to be this perfect wrap up. And then that, and Kirsten always, always likes every character to hook up with another character. Like someone who had one line 
in the fucking movie. Kirsten's like, at the party at the end, he needs to hook up with that one. I'm like, oh my God, no, not again. <laughs> Hilarious. Every, every script is always somebody. She's just like, these two should be a couple. I'm like, no, they don't, they don't need to be a couple. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's from that, from some kind of wonderful, that John Hughes movie where like the real mean girl at the end at the party is like, makes eyes across the room with like the, the frizzy haired biker dude. And it's just like, Oh, my heart just sang when I saw that, like odd couple pairings at the end is just a little cherry on top. That's- Sometimes she lets me do it. Other times I don't win this battle. Kirsten's- Favorite trick is the odd couple pairings. Always. It's, yeah. Sometimes sometimes it's, it works out. Sometimes I'm not opposed, but like sometimes I'm like, the bus driver does not need to come back in this scene. No. Hey, bus bus drivers deserve love too, guys. Yes, thank you, Al. <laughs> so what about the film uh makes you proud in terms of the message that it sent and what it communicated about the rules you don't have to follow as a kid and as in, in particular as a young woman growing up in the world. I guess Cat was kind of my, de- definitely my first exposure, I think, to like a type of girl who, yeah, true to the Joan Jett song at the beginning, doesn't give a damn about her reputation. And yeah, you mentioned sort of like the feminist sort of undercurrent of the film. Yeah. I mean, I'm really proud of that, that we kind of, we, we, we put that out there and, and that it's still, um, it still resonates and that it was, I mean, we talked to a lot of really, really strong, inspiring young women who, who talk about seeing the movie and in young, in their younger years and, and how much it meant to them. And, and that feels super moving. And yeah, I mean, just, just, I feel, I think we just feel really proud of the whole, the whole thing. We feel proud to, have been a part of, you know, working with those actors at that moment in their career and, and obviously um, being part of a girl power movement and an empowerment movement and a feminist movement when it, there weren't really those phrases for it. Yeah. Just portraying a character that, you know, shows girls that they don't have to always go with the flow mm-hmm. you can be your own person and, uh, you know, be valued. Did you have to fight to be able to do that? Was there was there any kind of studio pushback or was it one of those like lovely environments where people actually let you do this thing that uh, deserves to be on screen where you are sort of spreading that much more positive message and like realistic representation? Well, like we said, the opening scene was changed because they thought that made her too mean. But I mean, yeah. I'm sure there were moments along the way that they were just like, well, you might have gone a little too far here, ladies. But um, I think for the most part, it, it the character retains the, the spirit of what we intended for sure. Yeah. I mean, there was, there's, there were hiccups along the way of like the director having, you know, wanting to, to futz with the dialogue a lot, but we, and we definitely had to fight in those situations, but we had really supportive producer, Andrew Lazar and our studio executive, Mark Varadian were, were like loved the script so much. And it was one of the few, um, scripts that got greenlit without a director attached or any kind of cast attached. It's, that's unusual. It was unusual then and unusual today. So um, they, they, you know, made, wanted to make sure that everything that, that was there in the script that they read, that they bought, um, that we wrote was main retained. So um, that was really lovely. 
And where do you see 10 Things mark today? Do, do you see its influence when you like switch on Netflix and turn on certain films and programs? There was a movie called To All the Boys I Loved yes. Before. Everyone yeah. said, oh my gosh, it's so much like 10 Things. So that, that I, I feel like that. has the spirit of that in there. Um, but that's probably the only recent one. I'm you glad that movies are back. I mean, yes. it's so much, so much fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you hope that it opened doors for a different type of teen movie with, yeah, as, as we've talked about, like a more feminist message? Yeah. I mean, for sure. I think, I think it, I think it has, I hope it has and, yeah. and um, that it will continue to. If you were writing the film today, is there anything you'd do differently? The boob Obviously, flash. We probably, we probably yeah. couldn't, oh, the boob the flash? Boob, that would not be there. Yeah. Well, but the way we wrote it, it was an, I always pictured it like, she was standing in the doorway and just flashed him for a second. But then the way it was directed, she's standing right inches away from him, holding her shirt up for like a full minute. And it's just, ugh. yeah, that one gives me the heebie-jeebies when I see it. But so we would definitely change that. That makes sense. I, w- I was expecting you just to say there'd be less bare naked ladies in the uh, soundtrack. <laughs> I'm not a naked lane. Hey, one week is a jam. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of uh, writing today, I mean, obviously you guys since then have worked on so many other amazing projects. Can you tell me like, um, yeah, what you've been working on recently and what's maybe coming up? We have been working on a script for Warner Brothers during the pandemic. It's called Um, 10. Yeah. Which is kind of a funny... It's kind yeah. of, well, oh, that's it's true. of a funny callback to where we started. Throwing that number in the title of scripts. Is- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I did a teen show based on a book that I wrote uh, on Netflix called Trinkets. Trinkets. And, yeah, I love it. Yeah, and oh, you do? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, of course. And we got we got some ten things. We got ten things cast member cameos in there for the for the friends and fans yeah. of uh larissa and, and andrew keegan so that's what was really really sweet um yeah andrew kind of andrew came in to play that part and he was just uh i think it was cool for him to come into an ensemble of teenagers and from and a different place in life and he was really energized by it and it, it brought him back to to the 10 things days a little because we shot in Portland. So mm. that was kind of I remember when we shot when we shot 10 things, Andrew had been on Seventh Heaven, I think, a TV show. And yeah. there were little girls, there were like eight-year-old girls waiting to get his autograph after shooting every day. They would stand there with their moms and they would weep when they saw him. They were just like <laughs> cuckoo for Cocoa Pops over Andrew. It was so funny to watch. I loved it. But yeah. Yeah. Big time teen heartthrobs. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to seeing 10 guys. Um, and also I am going to need you to promise me right here and now, if you ever do make that Navy SEAL action film, <laughs> we have to do script apart again about that. Okay. I need your promise on that. All right. Deal. We have to find it and send it to you just for your amusement. <laughs> on, on the cocktail napkin or? No, we actually did write it on paper at one point. <laughs> well, I'd love to read it. Um, guys, this was so, so much fun. Thanks so much for coming on Script Apart. Thank, Thank you, Al. You. It was a great Bye. It was a blast. Bye. Bye.
listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kemal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.